Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take two data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you from Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So the second segment of today's episode will be about the economics of Easter. We're dropping this podcast a couple days before the day of Easter. And so Easter is a sort of umbrella term for the economics of the Catholic Church and and, uh, Christianity, Catholicism more generally. So if you're interested in that, stick around. But first, as always, we're going to do something more sort of tied to the news. This is also tied to the date we're dropping this. The number we have here is 148 million. That is the uh, approximate number of people who filed U.S. income taxes in 2020. So yes, we're dropping this podcast on what's known as tax day in the United States. It's the day that all Americans need to, to file their taxes. You know, usually there's some scrambling at the post office to get that all-important postmark to the IRS. Money is due. A lot of people are sort of looking at the clock, getting a little bit stressed out. The deadline is quickly approaching each year. You know, I'm not going to overburden this with any other kind of lengthy introduction. You know, this is kind of an unavoidable topic for us to to tackle. You know, the only other alternative data point I was considering was two. Uh, That's just you know, citing that famous quote from Ben Franklin about the two things that are sort of unavoidable, death and taxes. But anyway, let's just get right down to it. Adam, how long exactly have people been paying income taxes? I mean, I imagine people have been paying some form of taxes for as long as there have been governments. But when did it start taking the form of taxing people's incomes? And what was the logic behind that shift? Yes, indeed. I mean, as long as there have been states, there have been taxes. And that also is very intimately tied up with the role of money, which is you know, one very good way of defining what money is, is the currency in which you settle your debts to the state, in other words, taxes. But the easiest form of tax to collect is some sort of poll tax, everyone pays, or a tax at the border of a country. And income taxes come along relatively late in the day because they're quite demanding in terms of the amount of information you need. Because you actually have to have something that you could declare as income, and that needs to be financial, right? It's, it's in a sense, an expression of the fact that the economy has become quite monetary, that we can all declare income in, in dollars or pounds or euros or whatever. And um, the first state, I think the common origin that's generally cited. There are, there are many early precursors, but the important origin of, of, tax, of income taxes is in the 1790s, as, as Britain girds itself to fight the Revolutionary Wars and the Napoleonic Wars against France. And so the modern income tax probably dates really to 1799, um, which was introduced by William Pitt the Younger in the, in the course of that great struggle. It comes and goes, but by the 19th century, middle of the 19th century, the British have a regular income tax in place. 
The United States, perhaps unsurprisingly, is really late to this party. The first American income tax was mooted in the Civil War in the 1860s, but it didn't really go very far. In 1894, Congress passed the Wilson-Groman tariff, which established a 2% tax on the annual income over $4,000, which was a lot of money at the time. Um, but that was then struck down by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional. And it's not until 1913 that the 16th Amendment to the US Constitution is passed, which secured the legal basis for income tax. Um, and then shortly after that, really, the entire apparatus of modern American taxation comes into being in, in you know, 100 years ago, and the dreaded 1040 form, which you know still dominates the tax process, was first issued by the Internal Revenue in 1914. So it's a century-old um, tradition, and people outside the US should know that if, if you have an American passport, you are required to submit a tax declaration, right? So you, 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 the, the only way in which you can escape this obligation is essentially to renounce your citizenship in one form or another. So it's an incredibly defining element of what it means to be an American is to, is to make this declaration. Yeah, America is one of the only countries with that, right? I mean, otherwise, most countries, I mean, maybe some Americans would be surprised to hear this as if you sort of move abroad, most countries don't ask you to file taxes, but America does. Anyway, I guess to burrow down a bit more, I mean, in relative terms, how progressive is sort of the existing system of, of income taxes? I mean, compared to other forms of taxes, is it more progressive than sales tax, but less progressive than various types of wealth tax? I mean, you do hear that term a lot now. So, so where does income tax stand? American income tax, if you pay it, is, is really quite progressive. I mean, some would argue, in fact, that it's one of the most progressive income tax systems in the world. Um, so the rates go up steeply and people on lower incomes are largely exempted. The, as it were, inequalities around income tax and arise in the United States from the wide open possibilities of redefining income in, in various forms so it doesn't fall under the tax. So famously, many of the America's oligarchs, many of America's billionaires effectively pay no income tax because they redefine the accrual to their wealth in forms that doesn't fall under the tax. But if you are paying out of salary or other types of income, it is steeply progressive compared to that in many other countries. It's certainly more progressive than sales tax. Another form of relatively progressive tax is property tax. Um, the question there is how far that's passed on to renters, tenants, but yes, the American income tax system by itself, standalone, seen in the abstract, is, is uh, quite progressive. So uh, as long as I, I can remember, I've heard people refer to the benefits of shifting to a flat tax system. I, alleged benefits, I guess I should say here. You know, a flat tax would be everyone paying the same rate and uh, it just being applied across the board. Do you know what the genealogy of this idea is, Adam? And is there evidence for those claims that it would be more effective and more efficient? The modern origin of that campaign in the United States dates to the early 1980s. It's a sort of Reagan era phenomenon, which I, I think, again, dates so many of our conversations can turn into the kind of explorations of biography. And I think it's, it's actually literally true that for your entire life, <laughs> you know, Americans over dinner table, a certain sort of American anyway, is saying, mm. damn, wouldn't it be better if we had a flat tax? So the idea was launched by 
unsurprisingly, perhaps two fellows of the Hoover Institute <laughs> in 1981, and they proposed a model like this. There was a push in this direction in 1986 with the Tax Reform Act um, passed by Congress, which set two rates, so a step towards having a single rate. But then um, subsequently in the 1990s, Congress reintroduced a third rate and America has systematically diverged away from this idea of a single uh, tax rate norm um, ever since. There are some countries which do use flat rates, uh, 24 in fact, by the most recent count. Um, the Baltic states, the post-communist Baltic states are particularly mm. notable. Estonia has a 20% uh, flat tax. Russia, in fact, implemented a 13% flat tax on individual incomes in 2001. So it is, in fact, often in in uh, the post-communist uh, countries where this has uh, worked out. But in the US, it's never really gotten off the ground, though at the state level, um, there are flat tax proposals. So for those living outside the US, uh, in the United States, income tax is leveled both at the federal and the state level. And in some states, the income tax element is is a flat rate. You know, in what ways has sort of paying taxes become its own economy in a way? I mean, obviously, there are accountants who prepare people's taxes in this labyrinthine system. There are tax consultants there's tax software, this goes sort of on and on. I mean, is it possible to even estimate the size of this sort of tax-adjacent economy? Yes, indeed, uh, we can. And it's absolutely gigantic. Uh, according to official estimates, hmm. it's, it's believed that Americans in total, both individuals and businesses, spend 8.9 billion hours complying with IS, IRS filing requirements. That was in 2016, and it hasn't gotten any simpler since. 8.9 billion hours. And unsurprisingly, they pay people to help them do this. We, we think that there may be as many as 4.3 million full-time workers mm. doing nothing but tax return paperwork. I mean, it's absolutely, it's absolutely staggering. I mean, that number seems so extraordinary. It's hard, it's hard really to credit. So we're talking about an industry which, in, which generates a huge turnover in revenue. Um, the direct cost is estimated in the order of about 100 to $150 billion dollars. And furthermore, there's no doubt at all, I think, that the tax preparation industry, which is an industry, systematically lobbies against simplification. So instead, what they did was to strike a deal, the big turbo tax and so on, struck a deal, which was kind of like a public-private partnership with the IRS, in which the IRS steers American taxpayers towards private software. And the first stage of the private software for very simple tax declarations is free, but if you have anything more complicated going on, and of course, the threat is always that you fall foul of the system and get audited, you opt for a paying system. So in effect, the IRS, rather than offering free tax help, if you like, has become complicit with collaborating with the private industry. So this is rather more like, you know, the ghastly mess that is American healthcare than it is really a stripped down, streamlined, efficient tax revenue collection system. It seems like it's worth emphasizing that it doesn't need to be this complicated. Like we could have a progressive income tax system without it being this kind of horrid, inefficient mess. Like that, it doesn't need to be a flat tax for it to be simpler, right? I mean, like it could be, there are plenty of countries with simpler ways of filing taxes than the U.S. does. Uh, uh, the US absolutely, does. absolutely no question. And the overall effect of the American welfare and tax system is of course nowhere near as progressive as we would like. There is just this one component of it which in some senses the politics of are quite difficult, right? Because the American income tax system, nakedly, if you don't work it, if you don't find ways around it, is indeed very progressive for people on, on higher income. So unsurprisingly, it stirs 
very considerable resentment, right? Because they end up paying a vastly larger share of income tax than anyone else in American society. That doesn't mean overall the system is progressive. It just means the bit that operates mm. bites in that way. And it so it's, as it were, almost designed to produce the maximum of hassle, the minimum of actual revenue, the maximum of revenue for the private industry, and the maximum of dissent and, and discontent with the system. It's neither efficient nor legitimate. Got it. Yeah. I mean, this seems like a pretty flawed system, but I guess that raises the question, Adam, which country do you think has the best tax system if you were to, if you were to pick? I mean, are there any particular standouts in the world that, that, you, that you would point to? Or I guess maybe conversely, are there any systems that are even more disastrous than the one you're sort of describing in the US that come to mind? I, to me, I mean, I have limited experience of, I paid taxes in three countries and there's no question at all that the United States system is by far the worst. At least 30 countries do return free filing of taxes and those are countries like Denmark, Sweden, Spain and the UK. There are countries, notably in Southern Europe, which have even lower compliance rates, which points to the fact that their systems don't work very well. There are some systems which require very onerous prepayment of taxes, which is terribly bad for small businesses, right? So where essentially a tax is assessed, regardless of whether or not you have the income and then you have to pay retrospectively. T property tax systems can have this mm. very pernicious effect also in situations like in Greece or Italy, where you've had a housing crisis and the value of property has fallen and the tax bill remains the same. So there are, I think, systems which fail even more egregiously. But for a large country with a kind of economy and sophistication that the United States has, the the tax system in its current form is, is um, well, it's a dead weight that generates benefits for certain sexual interests, but it's it's not good at generating revenue and it's hugely inefficient and overall doesn't generate a very effective redistributive outcome that one would look for. All right, great. That's something that we Americans can be proud of, having the worst tax system. But anyway, okay, we will leave it there. Good luck to everyone who is still filing today, I guess, if you're listening to this on Friday. But otherwise, yeah, stick around. We will be talking about Easter in just a second. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc., and uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain. And, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. 
It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hi, and welcome back. The data point here is $6 billion. That is the approximate total assets of the Vatican Bank. That's a lot of money, but it's only some of the money controlled by the Catholic Church. Obviously, Easter is coming up, so we thought we would try to understand the economics of the Catholic Church, maybe Christianity more generally, but uh, we'll just dive in. So, Adam, what exactly are the sources of the Catholic Church's income? I mean, is it mostly tithing? Is it real estate? What does the Catholic Church do with its money also beyond its sort of operating expenses when it has a surplus? I mean, is it good at investing all that money? What do you think, Adam? I think the Roman Catholic Church right now will be quite surprised to hear that it has surplus money. I mean, it, it is, hmm. I think both of us found while we were digging into this, that it's incredibly difficult to get clear information about the financial and economic condition of the Catholic Church, which is a staggering fact because it's the largest you know, religious organization globally with 1.3 billion adherents worldwide. It goes dates all the way back to the fourth century um, AD um, when it was established under the Roman Empire. Um, and nevertheless, if you dig and dig, you, you, you really struggle to get clear idea about how the church functions as an economic entity. The, the Economist did a, a study a few years back in the middle of the first wave of sex abuse scandals so as to, I think, gauge the scale of the pool of assets that might be available to offer compensation, they came up with a figure of 170 billion in annual spend for the Catholic Church in the United States. But this was a very approximate number that they were able to, to work through. Um, overall, it's pretty clear, I think, that the wealth of the Catholic Church must lie in its landholding, in its buildings, in, in the material property. It set aside the the religious artifacts, the extraordinary art, um, which presumably just it's impossible to attach seriously a price to, but the landholding itself is 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 a bit of a mystery. I mean, it, until five to ten years ago, it was literally the case that the Catholic Church had not done an inventory of its real estate assets for two hundred years since the end of the Holy Roman Empire, <laughs> um, and there was a, a, a lay Catholic, a, 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 you know, a very committed Catholic computer scientist, uh, a, a, an American woman. Um, who who launched herself into the project of using modern geographic information systems to try and track the 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 Catholic Church's property, and she and her team have over the last couple of years come up with this staggering number of 177 million acres of land. That's 277,000 square miles of the Earth's territory are probably in one way or another on the books of Catholic organizations. That makes it, you know, that puts it up there with the largest 
royal realms of, of the world. Um, in the United States alone, there are probably 30,000 properties owned by Catholic organizations and Catholic-affiliated organizations. Part of the reason why they engaged in this project was that the, the new Pope Francis um, you know, set about trying to um, direct the Catholic Church in a more ecologically aware direction. And you can't do that unless you actually know how much of the earth the Catholic Church owns. So it's literally in a process of kind of discovery. It's really, a, I have to say, few things that I have researched have in the course of us doing these programs has surprised me more than this fact. You would have thought it would be well documented. They would have gigantic archives of, of what belongs to the Catholic Church, but this is apparently not true. This is interesting because, yeah, I also came across this kind of general opaqueness, opacity. But it sounds like you're also saying the church itself might not know how much wealth it has and how much <laughs> income it has. Yes, I don't it, think it's hidden it, somewhere. It's you know, they, just, yeah. they don't think they know. And ownership's obscure, too. So because the, the Vatican only uh, doesn't really doesn't own property outside Italy and, and Europe to any great extent. And so the, the American church operates its own business. I hmm. think the Latin Americans the same. But it's a we may need to come back to this. I see. I see. Okay. So so yeah, I, I guess I did want to zero in on the on the Vatican itself, which is, you know, an independent state of its own. I mean, uh, I remember when I was a kid, we were told it was the smallest country in the, in the world is, is this small territory within the city of Rome. Um, so I guess I was curious about the economics of, of that little country. I mean, what, what does its budget consist of? What are, what are its major expenditures that, that, that we can tell? And, and I don't know, what is the political economy of a place like the Vatican? I mean, in a sense, I guess it's an absolute monarchy. I mean, are all the decisions made at the royal court? Or are there other kind of avenues of accountability of, I don't know, other, I guess there's not a parliament, but are there other ways that economic actors can pursue their interests in the Vatican? I mean, it is, again, incredibly obscure and wreathed <laughs> in scandal. And I think it's, you know, it's you cannot compare the Catholic Church to anything else. I mean, it precedes monarchy, right? It's, it is the original hmm. blending together in, in the Western world anywhere of secular and spiritual power. I mean, the Vatican in its current form is is the residuum of what was left from the papal lands that were progressively annexed by the Italian nation state as it as it consolidated itself in the 1850s and 1860s. It's now like a triple leveled financial entity. So there's the Roman Curia, which is the Catholic Church central administrative body, which runs, as it were, the Holy See in its operations. This is the global Catholic Church as located in the Vatican in Rome. And its main revenue stream is the is Peter's Pence. So this fractional element of the donations to the global Catholic Church, which flow into, into Rome. And that budget operates chronically in deficit, like consistently in deficit for years. It's the object of scandalous reporting, not just by muckraking external journalists wanting to take the Vatican down, but by concerned Catholics who are regularly uh, anxious that they could just simply run out of money. Then there's the Vatican City, which is the entity which administers St. Peter's, the entire tourist operation. That has a much larger revenue flow because simply the volume of visitors to Rome, it too runs at a deficit, a more modest deficit. And right now, the, the, the Vatican authorities, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a country with a thousand inhabitants. So they are going through a kind of austerity program to try and balance the books. Uh, uh, the third element is that the Vatican City is home to this thing, the Vatican Bank, 
which is in fact a private bank located in the Vatican, founded by Pius XII in 1942, which is not a very auspicious moment for the Vatican to be going into banking. And it's this entity which had you know, recently anyway, assets of around 6 billion, it made a small profit on those, in fact. But it's also just inveiled in endless scandals about mismanagement, money laundering, flat out fraud, um, ridiculously bad investments in property in London. So this is a, a an ongoing construction site. And certainly one of the missions of, of Francis's papacy is to get a grip on this situation and bring it under control. Wow. Okay. Pretty dark portrait. Was there a specific point in history where the church, I mean, the Catholic church became a financial actor on a major scale in this way? I mean, I would have thought the church has always had theological reasons to be anti-capitalist. Um, I mean, the high point really of, of the church's economic influence is the, is the Middle Ages. I mean, between 1100 and the 1500s, the Catholic Church has a monopoly on religious authority in in Europe and in you know Europe's uh, expanding colonial realm from the 1500s onwards, and that means that it is a powerhouse of the global economy. I mean, the the construction enterprises of the Catholic Church, the construction of cathedrals, uh, is are some of the largest undertakings of Western civilization at that moment. There isn't a lot of infrastructure, not a lot of secular building on a similar scale to the great cathedrals. Um, the monasteries are centers of organized, sophisticated agriculture. Uh, they are the first places to develop serious plant breeding, cultivation of modern wine, for instance, is all monastery based in the first instance. They are hubs, really, of sophisticated agriculture, and not just that, but literacy, of course. So they, it's out of the monastic system and out of the church that the educated elite, the civil service, if you like, of the medieval monarchies is recruited. And they have a, you know, it's a business proposition. So people tithe, people um, um, donate their property to the church on death so as to secure um, uh, their moral standing and to underlight it, the you know the university that I was for a long time associated with in Cambridge is a is a is a testament to that that gigantic industry of the benefaction of religious uh, orders and foundations, and it's really from the 1500s onwards that one that one sees the decline of this system right and it was progressively broken and very aggressively broken open by so-called secularizing states the term secularization that we think of most commonly in relation to the spiritual realm right people losing their religion becoming atheists or whatever was in fact originally coined to describe the appropriation of church property what what secularization means is actually a state taking charge of a, of a church's property. And this happens on a huge scale, really, in the period after the French Revolution and prior to that in the period of the Protestant Reformation with the English state, for instance, notably under Henry VIII, enriching itself at the expense of the Catholic Church. So it was one of the great prizes that came out of the medieval period, one of the great centres of wealth, which involved it in credit on both sides. It lent money and it borrowed money. It set the interest rates and usury is really best. The usury legislation is best set, best understood, if you like, as a kind of theological regulation of the interest rate rather than an outright ban on borrowing and lending. So to end, I thought we could indulge in, a, I guess, a bit of speculative theology uh, while we're on this subject. So I guess the question I had was, what are the economics of heaven? 
<laughs> I mean, if that's a kind of regulative ideal that believers are meant to strive for, it seems like, you know, we could try, at least try to imagine or understand what it is. I mean, you know, whether it's before the last judgment or not, I guess, whether it's people of bodies or not in heaven that have been resurrected, my understanding would be that either way, there's no desires to be fulfilled. I mean, everyone is perfectly content. So does that mean there's no economic exchange at all? Is the, is the point of, of heaven to just transcend economic activity, Adam? I think so, almost certainly. But this really is where my like, you know, theological hang-ups <laughs> kick in again. And let me be the historian, which is that there may not be an economics of heaven, but there sure uh, was an economics of purgatory, right? The halfway house. And this was crucial for the medieval church, guys. It was where you, as it were, could through A, prayer, and B, through financial contributions to the church, buy remission. You could buy uh, you know, accelerated progress through purgatory on your way to heaven. And this was crucial for the economics of the church at the time. It was crucial for people's understanding of what to do with their wealth. It was also a crucial element of the Protestant critique of Catholicism. Because one of the reasons why, you know, the economics of Catholicism is such a touchy subject is that the corruption of the church in the literal financial sense was always one of the points at which Martin Luther and the other reformers attacked the Catholic church. And purgatory was this idea that you could buy mm. a shorter period before you were ultimately, you know, qualified to enter heaven was one of their most salient points of criticism of the Catholic Church, the, the church that they aim to replace. So in the rather cynical business of the economy of religion, this is described as, as it were, one of the more disastrous market offerings by the Catholic Church, the idea that you could buy yourself a uh, quicker access to, to heaven proved to be something that in the end broke the church's monopoly because Luther's promise to free his followers from that absurd kind of bargaining was part of what made the new Protestantism, the new Reformation, so attractive. Yeah, it is kind of hard to imagine God kind of setting prices on people's souls. Like, sort of. Oh, well, the Catholic know. Church literally did. It was called the sale of indulgences, and you could buy them. And they, there was a there was a yeah, price, yeah, probably, there was a price sheet. Exactly, but the claim that somehow that Jesus was involved in in that, which I guess they had, they had to make for legitimacy. I don't know. It just seems, yeah, I, I, it must have been hard to keep that up. But uh, they clearly managed to for a while before the Protestants showed up. But okay, we will leave it there. My kids are in the background, calling for something. Maybe I'll fill them in on, uh, you know, on some of this theology. But we will otherwise be back next next week. That's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks, as always, to my co-host, Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at Ones and Twos Pod. Remember, that's Twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, 
Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. <laughs> <laughs>